It's all right. See, us millennials, we're good for something, right? We're good for something. Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. That's right. We are at a Matthew 17. Matthew 18 is where we'll be at this morning. Matthew chapter 18. We will uh, be in Matthew 18 for this week and next week, and then we will be doing a uh, Christmas sermon series through the month of December, uh, looking at some of the prophecies leading up to Jesus' birth and some of those portions in Luke's gospel where we're actually seeing the angel come and visit Mary and, and the actual birth of Christ. So um, uh, sometimes we do a Christmas series, sometimes we don't, and this year we're going to do it. Matthew 18 verses 1 through 5 is where we'll be at this morning. How would you define true greatness and success to somebody? How would you define true greatness? Uh, Mike Tyson, the crazy boxer, defines it as uh, being accepted by the people. Frederick Douglass, the famous abolitionist, said that man's greatness consists in his ability to do and the proper application of his powers to things needed to be done. Uh, the historian Daniel Burstyn remarks that some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some hire public relations officers. Um, now, we, we tend to view greatness as something that we reach, something that causes us to be recognized, respected, um, viewed as successful. Now, for some, greatness means wealth. For others, greatness is being the top expert in their field. For still others, that's working up the corporate ladder, gaining power. For others, it's leaving behind a legacy, right? maybe a family legacy. Uh, for others, it's, it's a name, like internet fame, being a YouTube star. I'm sure that's the ambition of, of many of you here. Um, but how does Jesus define greatness? That's really the question we must ask. How does Jesus Christ define greatness? That's the real question at the center of our text this morning. And, and what we'll see is that Jesus' definition of greatness is really the opposite of what many of us today and then think greatness to be. Let's read our text, verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Let's pray as we come to the word of God. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, for its trustworthy character, that it is perfect in every word on the page, Lord, that it communicates to us exactly what you would have it communicate to us. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us such a treasure, a book that we can understand, Lord, and, and a book that we can approve by your Spirit that we can receive by your Spirit's help, that we can understand beyond the surface by the help of your Spirit. And so, O oh God, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit today as we hear your word, as we hear the teaching of Jesus this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help me by your Spirit. My preaching is, it, it, it is without effect. It is nothing, Lord, if you do not bless it. And so, Father, we pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted and that we would be humbled under the preaching of your word today. And that in all of this, you would be glorified and your people helped. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, chapter 18 begins with an ambitious argument. An ambitious argument. We saw last week that Jesus and his disciples have traveled to the village of Capernaum in the region of Galilee. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that while the disciples are walking along the road to Capernaum, they're having an argument. Uh, but the argument's been unresolved. They haven't figured out an answer. And so the discussion ends up being brought out to Jesus. And we're told in verse 1 that the disciples come to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is what the argument has been about. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who among them is going to be his right-hand man? Now, maybe this argument arose because Peter, James, and John were set aside to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. That might have caused some conflict with the other nine. We don't really know. But either way, they are having an argument that is rooted in ambition, right? The twelve are fighting about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And that's really a revealing question, isn't it? It's really a revealing question. What does it reveal to us? Well, one, it reveals that the disciples think one of them is the greatest. It's one of us, right? And each one may well assume that he's the greatest one. It also reveals that the disciples think that greatness, power, success, prestige, is the goal of the kingdom of heaven. It reveals that the disciples have started to think about the kingdom of heaven more than perhaps they have in the past, but they're still thinking about it in earthly terms, in human measurements. It reveals that they have a prideful ambition to be the greatest. They have a man-centered approach rather than a Jesus-centered approach to the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and perhaps worst of all, it reveals that they might even see being a disciple of Jesus as a means, as just a means to greatness, power, and position. If I'm Jesus' disciple, this is what I'll get out of the deal. Right? They think that because they're on the ends with the Messiah, that surely they'll have a position of greatness. And based on this argument, that seems to be their goal. And with all that in mind, it becomes pretty clear this is the wrong question. Right? This is not the question they should be asking, especially at this point in their discipleship to Jesus. Right? Remember, we, we've spent two and a half years in Matthew's Gospel, and we've seen that Jesus has taught the disciples multiple times, multiple times about denying themselves, about taking up the cross of suffering, about following him. Jesus has promised them no grandeur, no splendor, no prestige, but actually difficulty, suffering, and self-denial. And they seem to have forgotten all about this. That's just gone in one ear and out the other. And so the disciples, because of their selfish ambition, are now in an argument about who is the greatest. They're quarreling about who's the best, who's number one. Now, it's a biblical truth that such selfish ambition often, if not always, leads to quarrels. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James 3.16 that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Indeed, right? Isn't this not true? Our, our quarrels and fights often arise because we think ourselves and our goals and needs are most important. And that's certainly what we see here with the disciples. They haven't been able to resolve this argument. They haven't been able to all agree on who's the best. Surprise, surprise. And so the case is brought to Jesus, their teacher. 
And how does he respond? Well, in verse 2, we see he responds with an unexpected example. An unexpected example. Jesus loves his disciples way too much to let them continue quarreling about this. And so he gives them an answer that J.C. Ryle says is intended to wake them from their daydream. An answer containing a truth which lies at the very foundation of Christianity. But Jesus doesn't speak quite yet. He does something else first. He, he calls a child to himself in verse 2. The Greek word here describes a, a young child. This is a child under seven years old. Small. Now children in the ancient world, they were loved by their parents, uh, but they had a very low social status because they really could add no value. Right? They couldn't make money. They couldn't do labor. Right? There was nothing that they could add. Uh, they were nowhere near equal with adults. They had no power, no prestige, no greatness. We don't even know the name of this child. That's how insignificant children were considered on the social ladder, right? And, and a child this young would have been completely dependent on his parents for everything, right? There's nothing about a young child that matches man's usual definitions of greatness, right? But yet Jesus calls this child to himself and he, he puts his arm around this boy. Now consider the setting for a moment, right? Consider the setting for a moment. The disciples are having this big knockdown argument about who's the greatest. They need their teacher to settle it. And Jesus brings a child into the mix. What great learning does this child have? Right? What, what, what is he doing here? Does he belong in the midst of these disciples? And yet, who does Jesus bring closest to him? It's this child, right? The child is closest in proximity to Jesus, not the disciples. Jesus is actually giving the child the place of honor in this moment. Right? The child is closest to the rabbi. And at one level, this demonstrates Jesus' special love for children. Right? Jesus has such tender compassion towards little ones. Uh, Mark tells us about a time when children were being brought to Jesus. Here's what, ha what, what happened. The disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, who do, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took the children in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Mark 10, 13-16. Jesus earnestly desires children to come to him and learn of him. Jesus loves children. Children, which is why I love Operation Christmas Child. It reflects Jesus' heart for little ones. And what a model Jesus is here for our own parenting or, or grandparenting, perhaps, that, that children, as, as difficult as they may be sometimes, right, they are not unworthy of our time. They're not unworthy of Jesus' time. right? To bring them to Jesus and teach them about him is the greatest way we can actually serve and bless those children as we do it with love. And, and so Jesus, he doesn't pick something great for his object lesson here. Right? He doesn't pick the most successful man in Galilee. He doesn't go out and pick you know, this famous Roman general. He doesn't pick the most beloved politician or famous artist. He picks a little child as the perfect example of what greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And with that example in place, he finally begins to speak, giving the disciples a humbling answer. And we see in verses 3 through 5. 
And Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now the first words Jesus speaks here in verse 3 are emphatic. They're important. He says, truly I say to you. Truly I say to you. In other words, take this seriously. Listen. Listen. This is really, really important. That's the force of what Jesus is saying here. Truly I say to you. And then in verses 3 through 5, Jesus essentially tells the disciples, okay, you want to be great? Here's what greatness actually looks like. Here's what it actually looks like. He gives them six things to consider. Number one, he tells them in verse three, you must turn. You must turn. This is the first step. To turn refers to to change, to turn from one thing to another. The King James Version and the NASB translate this as you must be converted. You must be converted. And in, in essence, Jesus is saying here to the disciples, You who are currently treading this path of fame, fortune, and power, and and greatness, you must turn from seeking these things. You you must be converted. You must leave all your self-centered goals and ambitions behind you. There is an important reason why this is the first thing Jesus says here. Uh, Because, friends, let me tell you that being great, right, is only possible by turning to Jesus Christ, by renouncing your own attempts to work your way to heaven on your terms. It's only possible by recognizing that Jesus Christ and not you is Lord and that He alone is the Savior God has provided for sinners. And unless you come to Jesus in faith and repentance, converting, turning away from your sin, unless you've renounced yourself and believed in Jesus, The door to the kingdom of heaven is closed to you. It's not even a question of who's the greatest. You're not even in the kingdom if you have not turned to Jesus Christ. And until you trust in Christ alone as your Savior, who died for your sins on the cross, then the question of greatness is not even a question you can consider. So the first thing Jesus says is you must turn. You must be converted. You must renounce your own goals and control and authority over your life. You must turn away from your sin. You must humbly turn towards Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You must be converted. You must be changed. And and really, that is only possible by the grace of God. That's the first step. It's the first thing the disciples need to do. That's the first thing you and I would need to do. Friend, have you been converted? Have you turned from your sin and turned to Jesus Christ? Renouncing yourself as Lord and putting Jesus on the throne. The second thing Jesus says is, you must become like children. You must become like children. Uh, Jesus then tells us, we must become like the very child he's brought into the midst of the disciples, this young boy. And again, remember, children in the ancient world are very low on the greatness scale. The disciples then must be willing to make themselves of little to no account in the eyes of others. Being content with the status that a child would have. Now now think about the nature of children for a moment, too. This goes beyond status socially, right? Just think about children for a moment. 
Children are simple. They're sincere in their faith and in their understanding. Little children are not cynical, right? They're not skeptics, right? And we're not talking about teenagers here. We're talking about little children, <laughs> little children, right? They're not skeptics. They are trusting by nature, aren't they? They trust their parents to make sense of the world around them. Sometimes they trust their friends to make sense of the world around them, right? But they are trusting. The disciples must trust Jesus. They must trust God with simplicity, not thinking they're wiser than him. Children are also taught. They don't, they don't teach, right? They are, they are taught. They love to learn. They absorb things, right? They learn from all sorts of sources. And the disciples must be willing to set aside their own thoughts and opinions and submit themselves to Christ. Practically, this means obeying the Word of God, being willing to set aside our own ideas and letting the Word of God fill our minds, right? being willing to do what God says. Children are also completely dependent for everything, aren't they? Right? They may not realize that all the time, but, but they are. They seek and receive what they have from their parents. The disciples then must learn to seek and receive what their Father in heaven deems is right for them rather than what agrees with their selfish ambition. Now, friend, are you willing to be as great as a simple, dependent child? Are you willing to submit yourself to God in obedience to His Word, trusting Him to provide for you? Yes, God blesses us in many ways, but, but do you see Him as a means to an end? Is the blessing the goal, or is God the goal? Right? That's the question. So that's the second thing Jesus says we must do to be great in the kingdom of heaven, is to become like a lowly child. Third, he says you must humble yourself. Verse 4, you must humble yourself. Now notice where the responsibility lies here. Who must take the action? The disciples. It doesn't say you must be humbled, though God certainly does humble us. No, Jesus says, you must humble yourself. We are called to make ourselves lowly in heart and mind. Now, now consider how what Jesus says here, how you must humble yourself. Consider how that relates to the disciples' question. Right? They're saying, who is the greatest? Right? And Jesus is saying, you must humble yourself. This question is all about going up, 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 up. And Jesus says, you must make yourself go down. You must humble yourself. The disciples ask who the greatest is seeking to exalt and elevate themselves, but Jesus says that those who are truly great must do the opposite and humble themselves. Now, and this isn't false humility either. There is nothing worse than false humility. Than pretending you are lowly when you have a heart full of pride, right? You know, it's just, it's just the worst. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about acting humble. He's talking about being humble, right? This is genuine humility in view here, which starts in our thinking and flows out into our interactions with others. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 paints a very clear picture of what this looks like. Now, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. False humility does not count others as more significant than themselves. It just pretends to do that, right? 
But no, biblically, we're called to actually do that, to change our thinking about others, to count them as more significant than ourselves, and then as a result of that, to consider their interests as very important. Do you see what the core of true Christian humility is? It's not, oh, I'm a nobody, I'm nothing, right? That's, that's usually false humility. True humility is doing things not to serve ourselves, but doing that which builds up and serves others because we count them as more significant than ourselves. That's true humility. So to humble ourselves means to commit to living that way, to commit to counting others as more significant than ourselves and interacting with others on that basis. Now, it's not easy to do this, right? It's not easy to do this. And we can very much struggle with pride. Humility often does not come naturally, right? And we can't do what Jesus is calling us to do here without, one, recognizing we are sinners, right? And that God has been gracious and merciful to us, blessing us beyond what we deserve. That's pretty humbling, isn't it? And number two, depending on him by his Holy Spirit to change us and help us. Um, if, if you think you can be humble by your own abilities, you're not humble. If you think you can be humble by your own abilities, you're not humble, right? But saying, Lord God, I need your help to be humble, that's humility. That's humility. So we don't naturally like to be humble, do we? You know, our pride gets offended, we get embarrassed, we worry about what other people think of us, but Jesus says we must lay that all aside that we must die to ourselves, that we must humble ourselves. Think about how that would change the disciples' question. Right? Instead of it being, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the question would become, how can I help my brother or sister to be greater in the kingdom of heaven? That changes a lot of things, doesn't it? In other words, it changes the goal from our benefit to benefiting others for Christ's sake. That's humility. That's humility. Friend, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to humble yourself? To count others as more significant than yourself and, and, and deal with them on that basis and count their interests as worthy of your time. Number four, Jesus says that the disciples must see the least as the greatest. Uh, again, verse four, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Really, this is a core aspect of Jesus' teaching here, that the least are actually the greatest, the humble, the, the lowly, the simple. Those are the greatest. Jesus is calling the disciples to see that the least, like this little child, actually have greatest importance. And really, Jesus is taking this whole you know, human idea of greatness that's, that's nothing new. We see the disciples having the same conception of it that we have today. And he's taking it, and, 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 you know, we could say he's turning it upside down, but really what I think he's doing is turning us, who are upside down, right side up. Uh, you know, our society loves the rich, the famous, the beautiful, the, the powerful, the successful, right? They're the ones who are the subjects of TV shows and magazines, who, who, in, you know, who, who, who are, you know, all the buzz, right? Who in high school didn't want to be a little more popular than they were, right? You know, we, we've, we've all been there. In the, in the kingdom of man sees these things as greatness, right? Being somebody. And these definitions of greatness are the ones that have prompted the disciples' original question. They want to know who's the greatest because they want to be it, 
But in the kingdom of heaven, power, success, beauty, wealth, prestige, those are worthless pebbles. They're worthless pebbles with no value. You can't buy or sell in heaven's marketplace with that currency. No, in Jesus' kingdom, humility, selflessness, meekness, faith, sacrifice, love, goodness, patience, kindness, self-control, what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit, those are gold bars. Those are gold bars. The more a Christian has of those qualities, the greater they are in the kingdom of heaven. True greatness, according to Jesus, is what the world and the disciples and uh, perhaps some of you esteem as least. Now, I like to think this is just a whim, right? I, it's not something I can prove from Scripture, but I, I like to think the greatest person in the kingdom of heaven is some simple and sincere grandmother whose name nobody knows, but who's just lived this life of, of simple and sincere love for Jesus. Right? Maybe she's a Sunday school teacher at her little church in the countryside somewhere, right? And she's just taught all these little kids about Jesus for 80 years. You know, I, I think that lady's going to be pretty close to the head of the table in heaven. Those friends, are you willing to be considered least? And are you willing to consider the least the greatest? Are you willing to be looked down on by others for the sake of knowing Jesus? Can you be content with that? Can you be content with that? And number five, Jesus tells the disciples that they must consider themselves above nobody. We see this in verse five. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, as I mentioned earlier on another occasion, the disciples tried to keep the children away from Jesus since he had more important things to do. Um, but Jesus himself considered the children of highest importance, and he welcomed them lovingly, kindly, graciously. And to receive is to do just that. It's a word of hospitality. It's, it's to welcome, to treat warmly, to be impartial towards. And, and in the immediate context, a child is in view, right? But the application extends beyond children to what we would call the least of these from, from Matthew 25 uh, to maybe those that we would label as the poor, the difficult, those that our society might say you about and, and exclude. Jesus says that our response to such people is actually indicative of our response to him. He associates the two. Now consider what Jesus is saying for a second, because this is, this is weighty. Our profession of faith is proven by how we treat the least. Now Jesus made himself nothing. He's the eternal Son of God, equal in deity to the Father, dwelling in glory from eternity past with him, and yet he was willing to take on a human nature, being born of the Virgin Mary, um, and, and, and living a human life as a genuine person, but uh, he did not look like the handsome white guy in all the paintings. Right? Jesus was not, you know, this chiseled guy with a great beard and a cool Palestinian outfit. Right? The book of Isaiah says that Jesus was not beautiful, he was not attractive, he was not physically impressive, he was not rich, he didn't have the appearance of blessing, but instead he had no form 
or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. At the surface level, Jesus was perhaps one of those kinds of people that would be the least of these. And if we do not receive the least, if we treat them with disdain, annoyance, or disgust, Jesus says that's actually how we treat him. How how we might treat him if he sat down next to us on the bus. We can't say, I've received Jesus into my heart with a serious face if we won't receive those who are like him a child, those who are the least of these. We cannot consider ourselves above, better than anyone, but we must be ready to lovingly receive them. Consider for a moment how that might change the way that we interact with some of the homeless people who we find on Sunday mornings outside our church. Do you just walk by without saying good morning? Or is there a way that we can show hospitality to them? Are we receiving the least of these in a way that Jesus would have us? And we must ask, how do we respond to such people? Are we partial at times towards the clean, the well-dressed, respectable folks, ignoring those who maybe don't fit our idea of what goodness looks like? Are you merciful to the least of these? Or do you consider yourself above them? And the sixth thing Jesus gives to his disciples and to us to consider is back in verse 3. If you do not do these things, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Right In verse 4, Jesus says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is perhaps the most striking thing in this passage. That whoever will not humble themselves and become like a child, whoever will not turn to Jesus, will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that for a minute. If you will not humble yourself before God and man, Jesus says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It won't happen. And Jesus means what he says here. And, And friend, he's actually the gatekeeper. He knows what he's talking about. Listen to him. And this isn't teaching that if I just become more humble, I've got a one-way ticket to paradise. No. What Jesus is saying is that the gate is narrow and puffed up people cannot fit through. If you are prideful, you do not recognize you are a sinner. You may say it with your lips, but you don't recognize it in your heart. You're not grieved by the fact that you've broken God's laws. You don't Feel the weight that you're actually condemned as a criminal in the court of heaven. You are not a good person. None of us in this room are good people according to God's perfect standard. Prideful people will not accept that statement. Right? Not in their heart. And if you do not understand that you are a sinner, you will not accept that you are in need of a Savior. And you will not come to Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life, the door of heaven, until you do realize that. In reality, if you're unwilling to humble yourself before God and man, you're not even looking for the door to the kingdom of heaven. You're not even looking for the door. You want your own kingdom. You don't want Jesus' kingdom. Or you want Jesus' kingdom on your terms. 
which is not how it works. And friend, I have to tell you, at the end of the day, Jesus will defeat any and every king that opposes him. Your kingdom will not stand. So surrender to him in humility and, and faith. Don't wait until you are in the courtroom of heaven to make your appeal. He will not listen. Today you have time. Today he is giving you another breath. And another breath. And another breath, but you don't know when the next one might come. But he's given you one more that you might exhale. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Don't waste those breaths he has given you, but use them to cry out to him. If you do not, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're not a Christian, you have no hope of heaven unless you humble yourself before God and seek the Savior he has provided. Believe the good news friend, today, that Jesus has died for your sins on the cross, that he has risen again to give you eternal life, and that through faith in him, you will be reconciled to God, the God that you've offended, that you'll be forgiven of all that and given entry into his kingdom. But don't waste another breath. And to the Christian, humble yourself at your master's feet at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Remember the kindness of God towards you and the wretchedness of your own sin and be merciful to others, receiving the least of these for Christ's sake, just as he has received you. Depend on him simply and completely like a child. I love that song we sang today, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Is that not a song of childlike faith and simple trust? Should that not be the song of our hearts? Be willing to set aside your own thoughts and opinions in order to learn from him and his word. And, and, and perhaps most importantly, look to Jesus. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Remember what Jesus has done. Starting in verse 6, we read that Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, look to Jesus as the greatest. That's what the disciples weren't doing. But that's what we must do. Look to Jesus as the greatest, though he made himself the least. He literally became a child. He's the eternal son of God, worshipped by countless angels in heaven, and yet is born as a helpless human baby. There is no creature on planet earth more helpless than a human baby. Jesus literally became like a child. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for you. He counted the salvation of sinners more important than even his own life. And he trusted the Father completely. Is there anyone more humble than Jesus? 
And at the same time, is there anyone more worthy of glory and greatness than he? Friends, it is Jesus who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that position's already taken. It's already taken. And that lets us give him all the glory and honor. Praising the one that the Father has exalted. That, uh, one that every creature will know his name and every tongue declare his praise. And knowing that Jesus is the greatest frees us to be humble. Rather than striving for greatness, we simply get to be humble at the feet of our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh, our Lord and our God, how, how sinful our hearts can be. For Lord, we, we look at the disciples' question and we, we wonder, how could they ask such a thing? And yet, our Lord, we find our own hearts wandering after human definitions of greatness from time to time, being captivated by those things. Forgive us, Lord, for where we have bought into that lie. Instead, Lord, would you help us to humble ourselves, to become like children, to receive those who are like children as well. And Father, truly may our May our concern not even be with greatness, but with the humble joy of serving Christ, being content with whatever lot he gives us, and saying with the psalmist that I would rather be a simple doorkeeper in front of the house of my God than dwelling in the tents of the wicked. Lord, what a privilege it is to serve you in any regard. And may we count that as such a rich joy. Our Lord, we pray that you would grant us humility where we lack it. That you would help us to be merciful where we are not. And that in all of this, our desire would not be for any gain of ourself, but that it would be for the glory of Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.